0: Thank you, John, for stepping in and leading music for us as Ron's out. You're leaving this afternoon right after this service, is that right, to drive uh, back to Wheaton? God bless your brother. Thank you. Well, We were uh, back east on vacation here just a few weeks ago. We stayed uh, for a little over a week with uh, my folks in the house where I grew up. And uh, it's always uh, fun to go back to the home you grew up in because when you're a kid, everything looks so big. And when you go back as an adult, you wonder what in the world happened. Uh, you know, the the side yard where we used to play baseball. Um, boy, I don't know if I'd let my kids play ball there. <laughs> Too many windows. But but it's neat to go back uh, and uh, look around. But one thing was a little uh, a little disappointing, I guess you'd say, even a little discouraging, and that is our neighbor's home. The whole time when we were growing up, it was always so very well kept and, and in great shape and with manicured lawns and flowers and shrubbery and that sort of thing. And, and the home had fallen into some disrepair and, and the yards were overgrown and those kinds of things. And, uh, you know, as I was reflecting on that, I thought that's a good illustration uh, really about uh, the message of today's sermon. You know, people uh, don't intentionally set out to uh, cause a home to, to fall into disrepair. They don't buy a home and then say to themselves, well, now that I've bought it, let's just see how badly we can run it down. That's not people's mindsets. But what happens is that uh, neglect builds up over the years. Things go unattended and uh, they begin to break and they don't get fixed and, and the weeds begin to pop up and it's, they're too busy to pull them. And, and over time, that which was once uh, beautiful begins to become pretty shabby looking. Such can be true of the Christian life as well. Open your Bibles to uh, Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2, that's page 1225 in those few Bibles. This is the second part of something we began last week looking at the church here at Ephesus. And as we go through this text together this morning, there are five facets of Christ's examination of the church at Ephesus that we must understand so that we will be able to discern what makes for a great church in God's eyes. We spent a fair amount of time last week sort of laying the foundation for that, and we're not going to go back. You were a foundation only once, so we're not going to go plow all of that ground again. If you want that, you can get it on the web. You can download it there, or you can get a hard copy of it. Um, So I'm not going to fill that all out again, other than just to say that... uh, These uh, two chapters, chapters two and three of the book of Revelation here are really uh, hard hitting chapters because this is the the resurrected Christ. This is the risen Christ, the omniscient one who is walking among his churches and he is evaluating them as to uh, how they glorify him or fail to do so. And so it is his critical eye that is that is examining the churches here and and there is much for us to take away from that. We uh, believe that uh, these seven churches are not seven periods of history, but are, but are real, actual churches that are representative of various kinds of churches throughout all the ages of the history of the church. And so you can find churches like the Ephesian church, like the church at Smyrna, like the Philadelphian church, and so forth, throughout the world, throughout all the ages, Of the church. And here in this church at Ephesus, we are going to, uh, by virtue of John's uh, recording the vision that he has seen, we're going to see what Christ thinks about his church. On your handout, I gave you a chart, and uh, there are five facets there of the examination, and you can see that we went ahead and filled in the top two for you. Amazing how we could take a 50 minute sermon and reduce it to two sentences. Uh, you probably thinking, why did you just do that last Sunday? And it saved us all a lot of time. Um, but uh, <clears throat> those two sentences presuppose a lot that goes behind them. But anyway, uh, that's the format we'll use as we look at these seven churches. We'll, look, we'll have a chart for each one and we'll fill it out as we go. So just briefly in review to give us a running start, there are the first facet, the command here in verse 1, to the angel of the church in Ephesus write. The one who holds the seven stars in his right hand, the one who walks among the seven golden lampstands, says this. He's writing here to, to as, as is translated here, angel angelos, could be messenger. We, we went about this uh, in some detail last time, told you why I believe that this is not an, an unfallen angel, but this is a human messenger and perhaps even possibly uh, go so far as to say the pastor of the church at Ephesus. There are second person singular pronouns used throughout chapters 2 and 3. So these hard-hitting evaluations go directly to a certain individual and then through him to the churches. So even preparing for this message, and I'm sure the ones to come, was uh, extremely convicting as Christ was speaking through His Word directly to me. We noted again that the city of Ephesus was a major cultural center, a major economic center in the ancient world because of its natural harbor and connectivity with roads, that there was a, a tremendous uh, uh, influx and outgo of culture and, and philosophy and science and religion and so forth. So it was a, a melting pot of all kinds of ideas here. It was a, It was a city that was corrupt to the core, debauched, practicing uh, um, idolatry and practicing the the pagan uh, mystery religions, practicing uh, black magic and all kinds of, of various demonic activities going on in this city. Yet it was a place of great prominence for the gospel. And that's the point. It was a place where the gospel took firm root and continued to flourish from that city, going out throughout all of what is modern day Turkey. This was a church planting church. So this was an active place. In fact, one writer uh, reflecting on this, and I thought it was a, I thought it was a good point. He, he said, you know, it, there's, it's to the church at Ephesus that was, they were the recipient most likely of eight different New Testament uh, writings. Eight different uh, par, parts of the New Testament or books of the New Testament, that's a better way to say it, were addressed to the church at Ephesus. Now that's pretty amazing. It's the Gospel of John, in case you're wondering. It is the book we know as Ephesians. It is first and Second Timothy, first, second, third, John and Revelation. So that is a lot of, of, um, of specific word from God to this particular church. This was a significant place. This was a place through which the gospel had taken firm root and had gone forth. and accordingly, Christ commends his church, verse two and following christ commends this church there is much good to say about this church i know your deeds he says and your toil and perseverance and that you cannot endure evil men and you put to the test those who call themselves apostles and they are not and you found them to be false and you have perseverance and have endured for my name's sake and have not grown weary verse six yet excuse me, uh, this you also have, that you hate the deeds of the Nicolaitans, which I also hate. So he commends the church here for their adherence to sound doctrine, for their unwillingness to to flinch or waver in any way on on sound doctrine. In fact, he he breaks it out into two things, two aspects here. He says, it is your doctrine I commend you for, verse 2, and it is your diligence, verse 3. It is the fact that you put to the test those who claim to be apostles, those that claim to speak for Jesus Christ, and you have found them to be false. You test the spirits, according to 1 John chapter 4, verse 1. You are, you are discerning when it comes to doctrine, and you are unwilling to compromise it. I commend you for such things, he says. And I commend you for the fact that you diligently persevere, verse 3, and you endure because of your adherence to sound doctrine. That it brings pressure to you. It brings broken relationships your way. It it causes you to to wonder sometimes, is it worth the fight? And yet you persevere on. He says, I commend you. I commend you for your doctor and I commend you for your diligence. But it doesn't end there. It doesn't end there. And verse 4, there is a major turn here now in his letter to this church. He said, but I have this against you. He has commended them. He has has said that that they are admirable in these things, but but I have this against you. You are doing some things well, but not everything. There is a real problem here in this church. Under the surface of that which looks all so good, there is a mortal danger lurking. And if this danger goes unconfronted, If something does not change, this church is in danger of extinction. This is not a small uh, matter. This is not just a a peccadillo, something that is tangential. This is a huge structural problem in this church. While on vacation, we were again back east and uh, flying into uh, Logan Airport. And uh, praise God, there's two ways out of Logan Airport. Because as um, probably many of you know, the the, uh, taxpayers of the United States have invested close to 15 billion dollars in in public works project to cause the expressways to run underneath the city and under the harbor out to the airport. Sounds like a good idea. And it all looked all so good, did it not? On the surface, it looked great. Yeah, it it was a cost overrun by uh, about 13 billion dollars. But but it was it looked so good until a concrete ceiling panel collapsed on a car and killed a woman. And now the whole thing is under suspicion. They're wondering if, it, if it's ever going to be usable. Is it going to be safe? On the surface it looks solid. It looks good. looks like a good idea. But there's something wrong at the very foundation. Well, just like the big dig has a problem at its very foundation, so does the church at Ephesus. The church at Ephesus that that looks like a place you would want to model a church after has a deep structural problem. And Jesus zeroes in on it with laser vision and he points it out to them. Look again at verse 4. But I have this against you. What? That you have left your first love. You have left your first love. What does it mean? What does it mean to leave your first love? What is it exactly that these Ephesian believers are guilty of that would cause the penetrating gaze of Christ to zero in on them this way, to, to turn from commendation to condemnation, which he does here in verse four. Well, the answer, I think, can be found for us back in Luke chapter 10, and so I'm going to just ask you to go ahead and turn there with me, Luke. 10, page 1033, if you're still using those few Bibles. Luke 10, and beginning in verse 25. I think this draws us to the core of the problem at the church at Ephesus. Luke chapter 10, beginning in verse 25. This is near the end of Christ's public ministry. He's already sent out the 70 two by two to go before Him into into all the uh, cities and villages where he is going to shortly come himself on his final approach to Jerusalem. And along the way, the religious authorities are continually harassing him and, and trying to trip him up, trying to cause him to, to misstate or misstep in such a way that they can, they can undermine the credibility of him and his ministry. And so in verse 25, it says, Behold, a certain lawyer stood up and put him to the test saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, What is written in the law? How does it read to you? And he answered and said, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength, and with all your mind and your neighbor as yourself. He said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this And you will live. And of course, the the lawyer here, it says, seeking to justify himself, tries a rhetorical response to Christ and says, who is my neighbor? And Jesus launches into this story about the good Samaritan, right? And the man who fell in among robbers and on from there. But the point I want you to see is the focus that comes out of the law that we have an obligation, a responsibility. It is what we were created to do. It is to love the Lord our God with all of our being, with the very fiber of our being, that all that we are is to love God and love our neighbors as ourselves. Turn back again to Revelation chapter 2 and let's bring that understanding forward here. Verse 4, when Jesus says to them, you have left your first love, what is he saying? He is saying to them that this second generation church at Ephesus, this second generation of believers here at Ephesus have had a cooling of their passion for God. That which once burned intensely in their hearts that would, would motivate them to, to hand over magic books worth 50,000 pieces of silver. That which would motivate them to begin planting churches throughout Asia Minor. That which would motivate them to bring the Gospel throughout all the world. That which would motivate them to be so intent upon leadership development and so uh, um, focused on screening out impure doctrine had now grown cool, had now grown cool. It was a surface activity. It was no longer passion from their heart. Beloved, it's inevitable that when your passion towards Christ cools, that your harmonious relationships within the fellowship will cool as well. What is the greatest thing? What does the law say? It says it'll love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength and your neighbor what? As yourself. When your love for Christ cools, your love for your fellow man will cool as well. And therefore, beloved, within the church, problems will begin to arise. How do churches have problems? Why are there horizontal problems within the church? It's because the love of Christ has cooled. It has grown cold. John himself, the apostle in 1 John 4.20, he says, It's impossible to love God and to hate your brother. He says, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he is a what? He is a liar. For the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he has not seen. We might proclaim our love and allegiance to Jesus Christ, but if it does not flesh itself out in the horizontal love of the brethren, then we make a mockery of our proclamation. Furthermore, Jesus said in John's Gospel, recorded in John's Gospel on the night in which he was betrayed, right? There in John chapter 13, verses 34 and 35, he says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Even as I have loved you, you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. It is love that measures our relationship with God. And when our relationship with God has cooled, our love cools with it. What is biblical love? What is it that has grown cold here? What is it that they have left here in Revelation two verse four? Well, love at its core. Biblical love is, is self-sacrifice. Love is giving, not receiving. Greater love has no one than this that he lay down his life for his friends, John 15:13. 1 John 4:10, this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, right? That whoever should believe in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. Love does not get, love gives. Love is not about receiving. Love is about giving. In fact, if there is no sacrifice, there is no love. There is no sacrifice. There is no love. So this church at Ephesus, this historic community of believers 2,000 years ago, what is it that they have lost? They have lost the love of Christ. The love for one another. The self-sacrifice. They will maintain their doctrine. They are not about to rewrite the doctrinal statement and invite in all the heretics. That is not their danger. But what is going on is that there is an erosion happening under the service. And indeed, it has happened. And the church no longer has fervency in their love. There's no longer depth to their love. There is no longer meaning for it in the church like there once was. The love of their conversion has waxed cold. The passion of their heart when they first came to Christ has given place to a cold and lifeless orthodoxy. They have doctrine without devotion. But doctrinal purity can never substitute for love. Doctrinal purity will never substitute for love. And so the only solution for this church is that they have to change. They must change. They cannot remain As they are they must change and they must change fast something must change fast and so in verse 5 jesus gives them the correction he gives them the correction remember therefore from where you have fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first or else i am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place Unless you repent. Those are hard words. Those are hard words from the Lord of the church. From He who walks among the churches. From He who's, whose gaze is able to penetrate below the surface. For He who knows the truth and depth of our hearts. He says you must change. And unless you change, I'm coming to you in judgment. I come to you in judgment. He gives them here in verse 5 a threefold process of change. And this is, this is good because the means by which they are to change this threefold process, beloved, is the means by which we can change too. It is the means by which you and I, to the degree we have lost our first love, can get back on the right path. The means by which we can also recover and escape the snare of the devil. So what is it? Well, the first step in the process, verse 5, is they are to remember. They are to remember. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. He calls upon this church to look back. To remember what it was like in the old days. He, He calls them to consider 40 years before. When the church was first founded. What was it like in those days? Remember when your love abounded. Ephesians Chapter one and verse 15, the Apostle Paul writing to this Ephesian church, he says, For this reason, I, too, having heard of the faith in the Lord Jesus, which exists among you and your love for all the saints. The Apostle Paul back there 40 years before, he says to them that you had an intense love for all the saints. Chapter three, verse 14, Paul says, For this reason, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth derives its name, that He would grant you according to the riches of His glory to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in the inner man so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith and that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ which surpasses knowledge and that you may be filled up to all the fullness of God. There was a day when this fellowship was full of love for Christ. When they burned like a supernova for Christ, but not anymore. Now, for them, it's externals. Everything looks good on the surface, but inside, the flame is flickering in danger of going out. Remember, he says, what it was like. He says, remember from where you've fallen. You see that? Verse 5. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen. The idea here is uh, is the picture of someone uh, falling from a high place, almost like a cliff, down into a ravine. And there they lay at the bottom of the ravine and they're looking back up to where they once were. You have fallen that far, is is the picture here. It is no trivial matter. It is not that you have stumbled. You have fallen off a cliff. And you have plunged down into an abyss. Remember from where you have fallen. You know, memory is a powerful force in the beginning of the process of biblical change. Memory is huge. We must go back to the place of departure. Departure. If you're struggling this morning with your relationship with Jesus Christ, if it's not what it once was, if, it, if it's a little cold, a little distant, or maybe it's very cold and very distant, you must remember what it was once and you must go back to that place. Go back to, to where you were when you lost the trail. We were home in New England. We had the privilege of going to Walden Pond. All you English teachers out there will be pleased to know that William and I went to Walden Pond and, and we were going to hike around it to the place of Walden's little cabin there and have some sort of experience <coughs> at Walden Pond. Well, actually what we're going to do is take pictures and bring them back to his English teacher and we figured it was worth about a half a grade. So uh, being the cynics that we are, that's indeed what we did. Kind of a modern day apple, I suppose. But anyways, as we were hiking around Walden Pond, because of the rain and the flooding back there, the trail had been washed out. The trail had been washed out. And so as William and I were walking, we, we got off the trail. And I, and I said to him, I said, son, this is not the trail. It's not marked anymore. And he said, yeah, I know, but if we just cut down through here, we'll get to the trail. And I said, no, we're not going to just cut down through here to get to the trail. What we're going to do is we're going to turn around and we're going to walk back. To the last marker where we missed the trail and then we're going to start again. We're going to remember from where we departed, we're going to retrace our steps and we're going to get back on the trail. And since I'm the dad, that's what we did. We went back and got on the trail. Do you remember what it was like when you first trusted Jesus Christ as your personal savior? Can you remember what that was like? Do you remember the excitement Do you remember the freshness of that new found love? Do you remember the almost irrepressible urge to tell people about it? Everyone, your family, your friends, everyone you met, you you couldn't contain it. You were were like those star-crossed lovers, right? They can speak only of the glory and beauty of that for whom they have such love. Where did it go? Where has it gone? Why is it that this magnificent treasure that we now have, that we can now define with such doctrinal precision, no longer grips our heart like a young lover? Where has the excitement of our relationship with Jesus Christ gone? The Apostle Paul says, or excuse me, uh, Jesus says through the Apostle John to remember. Verse 5. Remember, that's a present tense verb, by the way. It could translate it, remember and keep Remembering. Remember and keep on remembering. Do not forget your love for Christ. Do not forget what it was once like. That moment when you were transferred from the kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of His beloved Son. Keep it fresh. You know, a great way to do that is to to do what Jerry Bridges calls preach the gospel to yourself. You know, the gospel is not just for the lost. You know, the gospel is for the saved as well. We are to preach the gospel to ourselves. We are to rehearse in our mind the essential elements of the gospel. We sang the gospel here just before I got up to preach. Beloved, sing through that song. You want to preach the gospel to yourself? Sing. Learn that song and sing that song to yourself. You know, God is sovereign and holy, He is our Creator. He is the one with whom we have to do. We were created to glorify him, to worship him, to adore him forever. Yet in the garden, mankind fell. Adam rebelled against his creator, didn't he? He said, I will not have this man or this one to rule over us. He took of the fruit as it was forbidden. And he plunged himself and his descendants, and that's. All of us. He plunged us into the catastrophe of sin. We died. He died and we died with Him, the Bible says. We were alienated from our Creator. We are cut off from our God. And we now act out that alienation in full-fledged rebellion. We think we're our own gods. We do what we want to do. We do not want to bow the knee before our Creator. We want to be our own God. Our Creator God is holy and righteous. He cannot allow such open rebellion to go unpunished. And so, there, in a place called hell, He will punish it as it deserves. And because we all fell in Adam and we all act out that rebellion individually, we are all headed there. That was our destiny. But God did not leave us that way, did He? He sent His only begotten Son, born of a woman born under the law, that He might redeem us. And that there upon Calvary's cross, when He stretched out His arms and upon Him was poured the eternal wrath of God, He drank it for you and me. And He drank it of all. He left not any of the glass for you and I to partake of. He drank it to the dregs. He consumed the wrath of God against our sins. And then three days later, he rose from the dead, proving for all time that his death was on behalf of others and not of himself. The Bible says if we will believe, if we will believe that reality and entrust ourselves to it by faith, that we shall be saved. That we will no longer be headed to hell where we deserve, but we will go to heaven where we do not deserve. We will no longer suffer the righteous wrath of God which is our just desert, but we will receive the righteousness of Christ and eternal fellowship with our Creator, that which we do not deserve. Even though here and now we still mess up. We still sin, don't we? We still don't live as we would like to live. Even those of us who have trusted our lives to Jesus Christ, we mess up. We sin. We fall short of the glory of God. The beauty of the Gospel is, beloved, that our righteousness is not our own. It is in Jesus Christ. His righteousness is perfect. God's love for us in Christ Jesus is equally perfect. You mess up today, God will not love you any less. He will not love you any less. If you manage today to, to live for His glory, He will not love you one whit more. His love for you is full. It is complete. It is perfect in Christ. Nothing can separate me from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus, my Lord. Beloved, remember the gospel. Preach the gospel to yourselves. And then verse 5, repent. Repent. Do you see it? And repent, he says methanaeo to change your mind. To change your mind, to change your heart, to turn from your sin. Remember what it was once like and turn back from your current direction and go back to the sweetness of Christ. Remember how you once believed, how you once loved Christ, how your heart burned for that passion and turn from your present state of mind back towards Christ. Go the opposite direction. But it's not just enough to think differently, beloved. It's not just enough to stop where you are and say, I can't go any further this way. I must stop. I must turn around. Yes, you must, but you must do more than that. Verse 3, you must respond. There must be action. Action. Repent and do the deeds you did at first. Do you see it? Go back to where you lost the trail. Go back to the beginning. Go back to the cross of Jesus Christ. Jesus is calling this pastor and this church to action. He is calling them to action. They are to immediately start doing something different from that which they have presently been doing. They are to return to that which once characterized their love for Christ and their love for one another. They were to do the works that spring from love. They're not only to just change their way of thinking, they are to change their behavior. In Ephesians... Chapter 4, verses 22 and following, the Apostle Paul elaborates that there. He, he calls it putting off the old man and putting on the new. Stop living like the old man and start living like the new. If you have a problem with lying, stop lying and start telling the truth, he says. Remember, repent, and respond. What will happen to this church if they fail? What will happen to this church if they close their ears to this message? If they tune out this broadcast? If they become further satisfied in their own definition of Christianity? What will happen? Take a look at verse 5. For else I'm coming to you, and I will remove your lampstand out of its place, unless you Repent. Jesus says that I am coming in judgment and unless you change, I, the 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 risen Christ, the ascended one, the one who in chapter one, John describes like this, it says his head and his hair were white like white wool, like snow in his eye. were like flames of fire and His feet were like polished bronze when it has been caused to glow in a furnace and His voice is like the sound of many waters. And in His right hand He held seven stars and out of His mouth came a sharp two-edged sword and His face was like the sun shining in its strength. He who is the glorified One says that if you do not change, I will come in judgment. I will remove your lampstand, He says. I will remove your lampstand. You will cease to be a church. You will cease to be a church. Beloved, there are congregations whose lampstand has been removed. Or they continue to look like a church on the outside. It still says it on the, in the yellow pages and they still have a sign in front of the property. And they might have big and beautiful buildings. And they might have tremendous programming going on with people coming and going and a beehive of activity. They may have dollars flowing through the offering plate. Everything on the surface looks just fine. But in reality, they are merely a social club. They are merely a gathering of people. Their gospel witness has been snuffed out. They are no longer a light to their community, to their dark world. It is long since departed. Let me illustrate this for you from the Old Testament. Ezekiel chapters 8 through 11. We won't go there, but there in Ezekiel 8 through 11, there is a vision the prophet Ezekiel receives of the departing of the Shekinah glory of God from within the Holy of Holies in the temple. And reluctantly, the, the vision is, it's it's A step at a time, as if the Spirit is looking back over his shoulder and he wants to stay, but he's being driven out by their unbelief. So, step by step, he slowly withdraws. That vision occurred in 592 BC. The Spirit left his people. It wasn't until 586 that the Babylonians finally destroyed that temple. So for years, it looked good still on the outside. Inside, the lampstand had long since been removed. Beloved, externals is a dangerous way to measure the success of a church. It is not measured in external factors. Remember and do the deeds That you did it first, or else I'm coming to you and I will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. Fifth, verse 7 is his challenge. He's given them the correction, he's given them the means by which they can recover from his condemnation, and now he challenges them. This is the application point of the sermon. He says, he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To him who overcomes, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. This letter to this church at Ephesus has the same closing that all the other six churches have. To he who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches, plural. This message goes out to all the churches. All seven of them are to to receive this circular letter and to read this and, and to apply it where it applies. He says, if you'll listen. It's a metaphor. He was ears to hear. Let him hear. It's just a way of saying, listen up. If you're really attuned with Christ, then hear this and heed it. Hear it and heed it. He gives them an invitation. An invitation to listen and a promise urging them to respond. Right? He, to him who overcomes, I will grant to you the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. To him who overcomes, that's, a, that's another way of saying to a believer... 1 John chapter 5, verses 4 and 5 defines a Christian as an overcomer. This is not some special class of Christians. This is not super-Christians that somehow overcome. This is all who by faith in the Lord Jesus Christ have become His children. We are the overcomers, the true believers. And therefore, this appeal is addressed to all true believers through all the ages. To you who overcomes, to the, to the believer, I will grant to you to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. The eat of the tree of life is a promise of eternal life. You remember the tree of life. It takes you back to Genesis chapter 2, right? It was that which was then denied to Adam and his offspring because of their sin and guilt. It is now restored to us. Those of us who by faith have entrusted Christ for our salvation. You will be granted, he says, eternal life in the paradise of God. That is in heaven itself. In heaven itself. Beloved, according to the church fathers, the church at Ephesus remembered, repented, and responded. You'll be glad to hear that this did not fall on deaf ears. That the promise that was given to them, if they will but do the deeds that they did at first, then they can be recovered. They will be recovered and indeed they were recovered. It was through the the first four centuries of the church, the the gospel witness at Ephesus continued. It was later in the 5th century, as the Turks overran what is now modern day Turkey, that the church finally withered and died. You'll be glad to know that many of those to whom this letter were addressed, someday you will see them in glory. You will see them in glory. Beloved, a firm and unbending adherence to sound doctrine brings the commendation of our Lord. Sound doctrine is a big deal to Him. Believing correctly is important. Very important. But if doctrine is all there is, if the dry and dusty doctrine, cold, lifeless orthodoxy is all we've got, if we have lost our passion for the person of Jesus Christ and our love for one another, then we're in big trouble. Then we are in big trouble. If this characterizes your life, there is a way back. Remember, Repent and respond. Do the deeds you did at first. On your handout, I'll take just a couple of minutes with you and to turn it over. It looks a little different than it normally does week to week. Normally, in a week, I give you four or so kind of compound application questions. It's just hard to ask one question, so you, you know, just kind of keep going with you. I also include suggested readings if you want to pursue the topics of the morning sermon a little deeper. But, but this morning I'm doing something a little different for you. What I've, what I've given you is what I've used on myself this past week. I'm calling it diagnosing and curing a lost love. Is your love for Christ and His people grown cold? Well, here's a little diagnostic test for you to evaluate yourself. What I want you to do this week, what I pray that you will do this week, is to take this home. And to go through these questions together. Or individually rather, and then you certainly can go through them together. But let the Spirit search your heart. Let the Spirit of Christ search you. To see whether that which once was true of you is still true. Or there are areas of your heart and life where you have begun to grow cold. Says if you would answer, if you have answered no to a number of these questions, then you need to remember, to repent, and to respond. I've suggested for you here uh, just a few ways, a few ways that you might begin to do the deeds that you did at first, beloved. This is a serious issue. This is a serious issue. When you receive. The Word of Christ with a promise of judgment attached for those who fail to heed it. This is nothing to fool around with. I beseech you on behalf of Christ that you examine your hearts. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we pray that You would examine us. We pray that the examination that has begun even in this hour as we have preached Your Word will continue both this afternoon, this evening, and into the week to follow. We pray, Our Father, that we would not be hearers of the Word who delude themselves. We would not be like one who looks into a mirror and turns away and forgets what we have seen. But that we would be doers of the Word. That we would take the time to examine ourselves spiritually. That we would submit ourselves to a thorough evaluation. Take a spiritual, physical. Let Your Holy Spirit, using His Word, reveal to us that we're we have a problem. Our Father, we begin right now and confess. I confess on my behalf and on behalf of my brothers and sisters that there are areas of our lives where we have grown cold. I confess, Lord, that the passion of my heart does not burn as it once did. That there are those areas where I have grown complacent. Where the simple excitement of the Gospel has become now wrapped in complicated expressions of theology. But our Father, we hasten because we do not repudiate theology. Lord, that would be foolishness. You commended your church for their adherence to sound theology. So we do not want to fall into the ditch of experientialism, our Father, and emotionalism, and somehow that if it's just exciting, then that means we're walking by the Spirit. Lord, we don't want that trap but nor do we want the trap of cold and lifeless orthodoxy. Help us to chart the middle ground. Work in us. Change us. Conform us to the image of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Not for our glory, but for His. We pray, Amen. If you are with us this morning and... You do not know Christ as your Savior. The things we have talked of, you have not personally embraced. Oh, you may assent to them with your mind. You may say, yes, I, I believe that's true and true in a very general sense and maybe true for others, but see, it has to be true for you. You have to personally understand your need for Christ. You have to personally repent of your sin, turn from your sin, and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your only hope of reconciliation. At the end of every service, and this one is no different, there will be some folks over here by this lighted cross. They are there waiting for you. You come after we sing. We'll, people will be up and moving around. It's not here for us to put some kind of an emotional guilt trip on you or manipulate you. We could not... And would not. But we do invite you to come. To dialogue. To know, to understand. Have someone open the Scriptures with you and show you how you might have life everlasting. Maybe you've been on the fence here about whether you should join the fellowship. Unite with us in a common goal and purpose of making the Gospel available every year to everyone in the city of Upland to join with us in our desire to plant four Bible-teaching churches in the next ten years. These things ring and resonate in your heart. Come and join with us. You can again talk to those folks about membership. Or maybe you've come to understand that I've trusted Christ as my Savior, but you know, I've never been baptized. I've never taken that simple step of obedience. Oh, I've got lots of reasons. They seemed good at the time, but now, the truth be told, the biggest reason I don't come is because I'm embarrassed that I didn't do it before. Let not your embarrassment hold you back. Come. Take that step of obedience, take that step of discipleship. Submit yourself to the waters of baptism. Make public your commitment to Jesus Christ. God bless you, beloved.